Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. I'm Justin Brake, and this is... The Newfoundlander, Chapter 2. To hear every episode of this series right now, ad-free, please become a Canada Land supporter. Go to canadaland.com slash join, or click the link in the show notes. Okay, watch out, Jamesy. We're this casting. Come here. I'm fishing with my kids. They're two and six years old. Watch out. Come back here. I think I caught a rock. A rock? A rock. Uh oh. I hope it's a tasty rock. I remember when I was little, and my grandfather, who I called Pop, took me out on Square Pond where he had a little cabin, about a half hour drive from Gander, Newfoundland. One day we were seated in his old aluminum boat, hooks in the water. Pop pointed to the cliffs along the shore and said something I've never forgotten. He told me that if I keep my eyes peeled, I might see Indians. I never did. In our last episode, I told you about a story my pop told a stranger before he died that threw my whole family for a curve. 
It was a story he told as he was battling dementia, about being a Jewish Holocaust survivor who came from away as a child to Newfoundland and who hid his identity ever since. This incredible story was retold in a book and then in a hit Broadway musical. But it wasn't true. It was a concoction in which he conflated his true story of childhood abuse with things that never happened to him. My family suspected pretty early on that it was impossible, and I dug into records that proved those suspicions true. But there's another story about who we really are that a lot of my family do believe. A story that I believed too, that I wanted to believe. And as this story goes, we actually aren't settlers. We're not just Newfoundlanders or Canadians, the descendants of the French, British, and Irish. We're also Mi'kmaq, the First Nations people who have inhabited this land for hundreds of years. On today's episode, I go searching for the truth of that story. And yes, it's the story of my family. But what I find, as you'll hear, could impact tens of thousands of others. I'm Justin Brake, and this is The Newfoundlander, Chapter 2. I don't recall the first time I heard that we have Mi'kmaq ancestors. It was likely through my father, probably around 2007 or 2008. As I remember it, there was a flurry of excitement across Newfoundland at the time, right after the federal government announced that they would recognize the Mi'kmaq of Newfoundland. All of a sudden, everyone got real curious about their family trees, no matter how far back they had to go. At first, I was incredulous. I remember thinking often of a picture that hung on the wall of the house I grew up in. It was a picture of my great-grandfather, William Brake. He looked white, just like my grandfather. I asked Pop about it two or three times. Did he know anything about us having Mi'kmaq heritage? I never got an answer. He was in long-term care by that point. I don't, I don't think he knew. I think he died not knowing, because I don't think he would have denied it. That's my Aunt Anne-Marie who believes my grandfather didn't know anything about having Mi'kmaq ancestry. I think Dad would have been proud of it. Dad had a lot of friends, uh, you know, like from Con River. As you know, Mr. Jador was a lifelong friend. And they talked about everything, and they had all kinds of experiences together. And they had, I mean, you know, Dad, he never ever, to my knowledge, said anything in front of Mr. Jador. And I don't believe for a second that he would have denied that if he knew. I think he would have, like, looked into it and researched it and found out about it if he knew it was a possibility, even. The man Anne-Marie's referring to is John Nick Jador, a Mi'kmaq elder from Con River who passed away in 2016 at the age of 93. He was the oldest living Mi'kmaq person on the island then. I've long heard stories about how he used to visit my grandparents whenever he'd come to Gander, some two and a half hours away. Just a few years before he died, I visited him at his home during the community's annual powwow. I asked him if my pop had ever mentioned anything about having Mi'kmaq ancestors. John Nick Jador said no. But maybe there was a reason for that. After all, plenty of Mi'kmaq people here in Newfoundland hid their identities for fear of persecution. It's a compelling story and one that's certainly true for many families. 
So why not mine? Unlike the story of newfound Jewish ancestry, the story of newfound Indigenous ancestry was embraced by my family. And I came around to it too. Okay, history lesson time. Recent history. Newfoundland and Labrador only joined Canada in 1949. When it did, both the new province and the federal government neglected to mention in their terms of union that any Indigenous people lived here. That meant Canada, as far as it was concerned, had no legal obligations to Mi'kmaq or Innu under the Indian Act. So First Nations people here were left out. They had no access to any of the things Canada legally owes Indigenous peoples, like funding for housing, education, infrastructure, water, governance, lands and economic development, and cultural programs, just to name a few. The fight for recognition began in the 1960s. Well, I look back on the, the origins of what I call the modern Aboriginal movement in Newfoundland, dating back to the late 1960s and the early 1970s, when my own father, Jack Mitchell, got heavily involved with what I call the modern Aboriginal movement. That's Brendan Mitchell, chief of the Halibut First Nation. His great-grandfather was a well-known Mi'kmaq figure in Newfoundland history, Maddie Mitchell, who made his living as a guide and helped settler prospectors find gold and minerals in the early 1900s. Maddie Mitchell died in 1921, and looking at old photographs of him, there's no mistaking he's Indigenous. Not like Brendan Mitchell, who by his own description is a pretty white-looking guy. But the knowledge of their Mi'kmaq origins was passed on to the chief's father, and then on to him. There weren't that many people at the time self-identifying as being Mi'kmaq, nor there were many members of a group called the Federation of Newfoundland Indians which uh, existed starting in 1972, but prior to that, there was a group called the Native Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. But since that time, and since the move to recognition began, well, say roughly 50 years ago, there's been an incredible resurgence in interest in, in things Mi'kma'ki, and many people in Newfoundland believe that they're of Mi'kmaq background. What he's describing is a total reversal of how things used to be. It's well documented and understood that until pretty recently, lots of Mi'kmaq people hid their identities for generations for fear of persecution. The hope was to blend in, not put your hand up. So a lot of Mi'kmaq people grew up without even knowing who they were. Then, that all changed. What happened was is that it was almost like a conscription. People were encouraged to join. People were called and people were told, no, you got to join. Calvin White is a former chief of his community and a past president of the Federation of Newfoundland Indians, the FNI. Today, he's widely regarded as an elder. He explains that as the prospect of recognition grew, so too did the number of people self-identifying as Mi'kmaq. We're seated at the dining room table of his home in Flat Bay. It's an overcast day in late July, and he's cooked us a feed of moose. You want some more meat? There's lots. It's delicious, though. He tells me that the FNI aggressively pushed people to join, promising them all kinds of benefits in order to get their numbers up. People were solicited into joining. People who never ever wanted anything to do with it. Wouldn't, wouldn't. They, were, they were talked into it. You can get this, you get that. And they were solicited by people working with, with FNI, by some of the staff and even some of the leaders were doing that. And it was out of panic because what happened... The FNI lost sight of its responsibility. When you're an advocate for people, you're not an agent of the government. And when the government said the FNI 
these are the numbers. If you don't have these numbers, then we're not going to deal with you because they had numbers. They had to be that. That's when F and I panicked and went out and started soliciting people because they wanted to boost the numbers up because they were afraid that the government was going to turn them away. Mm -hmm. So so that's what happened. They were they were soliciting to coming in. And of course, when they got there and they seen the, the benefits that was there, uh, why not? They were, you know, that's human nature. You're going to exploit whatever you can get anyway. Human nature to exploit what you can to get anywhere. Why would a family like mine embrace the sudden idea that we were indigenous when we had never thought that way or lived that way before? Why have so many other Newfoundland families embraced that idea too? Well, life in rural Newfoundland has never been easy. There's a cataclysm going on on the east coast of this country. There are two extinctions involved. The destruction of one of the world's great food resources, the Newfoundland cod fishery, and the dissolution after 500 years of one of the most tenacious lifestyles on the continent, the Newfoundland outport. I was seeing a lot of sick patients with advanced cancers. And the cancer's happening in younger patients, 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds getting colon cancer, breast cancer. With the worst debt load, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador has signaled a shakeup is coming to straighten out the province's finances. To this day, Newfoundland and Labrador has higher unemployment rates than any other province. Many work seasonal jobs or travel to Alberta for rotational work in the oil sands or to the mines in Labrador. Our province has some of the highest rates of diabetes in the country, and we don't rank well on other health outcomes. Not all medications and treatments are covered by Medicare. Could Indian status be a way out of poverty, a path to education, and to a brighter future for many here? Could Newfoundlanders benefit from the handful of perks available to First Nations peoples without inheriting all of the racism and trauma? By 2008, the federal government had an agreement in principle with the Federation of Newfoundland Indians to recognize a new Mi'kmaq band, the Halibut First Nation. An enrollment committee led by former Newfoundland politician Tom Rideout was expecting a few thousand new members or so. When we formed the Federation of Newfoundland Indians, and right up until the registration process started, there wasn't tens of thousands. Mm -hmm. There was a very, very small group. Mm -hmm. We had probably about 1,500 people who had identified as Mi'kmaq people. Among them was an application from my family. Did my father, my aunts, uncles, and cousins suddenly believe that they were indigenous, that they had been for generations without knowing it? And if so, well, what did that mean for us? I don't know. All I know is that I signed the application too. I didn't really understand what it meant, but I knew it was important, and that there were deadlines, and that it was pretty fucking cool. So, I said that I, Justin Edward Brake, am Mi'kmaq. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community 
They are not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. In 2003, the Supreme Court of Canada determined that belonging to an Aboriginal group requires at least three elements, Aboriginal ancestry, self-identification, and acceptance by the group. In his decision, the court wrote that, quote, self-identification should not be of recent vintage, end quote, and that, quote, while an individual's self-identification need not be static or monolithic, Claims that are made belatedly in order to benefit from a Section 35 right will not satisfy the self-identification requirement, end quote. Nevertheless, in 2011, I found myself on Canada's Indian Register, the country's official list of First Nations people. I was assigned a registration number. But I felt a growing unease. I didn't really understand what it meant. I knew I wasn't like other Indigenous people, in skin color, lived experience, or blood quantum, the percentage of my DNA that traces back to indigenous ancestors. But neither were thousands of others here. The way Canada's Indian Act works, once you're given Indian status, you have to send off for your status card. That's the card that lets you apply for health, education, and other benefits under the Indian Act. I never sent for mine. I wanted to know, were we legit? There was no single story about my ancestors, just bits and pieces of information and anecdotes from historical documents and family lore. They're all like pieces of a puzzle. Here's what I learned. In the 1700s, a young British man named Ralph Brake came to Newfoundland and married a Mi'kmaq woman named Jane Matthews. Jane is said to be from Burgio, a small fishing community on the island's south coast. The two settled in what came to be known as Humbermouth, in the very same place where my grandfather was born and raised. That land, on the estuary at the mouth of the Humber River, came to be known as Brake's Cove. It still is. 
A genealogy report on Mi'kmaq family history in Newfoundland was commissioned by the Federation of Newfoundland Indians in 2002. It zeroed in on a few prominent families in the region, including us Brakes. The Brake families provide an interesting example of how Aboriginal and immigrant cultures merged in West Coast Newfoundland. Elements of both cultures were retained, but it seems that in day-to-day life, the Mi'kmaq way of life prevailed. The following excerpt is from an 1871 lecture by the Reverend M. M. Howley about his journey in the Bay of Islands. As we sailed onwards, we observed that both sides of the river were studded by numerous salmon nets. These nets belonged to a family of the Brakes who lived further down the river. They maintained themselves entirely by the salmon and trout fisheries. The progenitor of these men came out from England over a hundred years ago. He located himself on the banks of this river far away from the haunts of men and lived a semi-Indian life. Trading in furs and salmon and deer flesh, to complete his felicity, he married a squaw, probably following the Darwinian theory of natural selection, from whom there sprung up the present ten or twelve families. They have divided into two parties on account of some dispute concerning a box of money stowed away from their first parent. As we advanced up the river, there suddenly shot out from behind a wooden peak a small boat. It was manned by one individual of every extraordinary appearance. The features presented a very marked type of Mi'kmaq Indian. An enormous crop of coarse, bushy red hair stood out, thick and matted upon his head, while a very sparse down of the same russet hue flourished undisturbed upon his face and chin. This person was one of the breaks. He appeared very much awed by the sight of so many human beings in this solitary haunt and seemed anxious to avoid us. Beyond the historical documentation, there's also a story in my family that Ralph came to Newfoundland as an enslaved teenager, that he jumped ship, was rescued and adopted by quote-unquote Indians, and then later was permitted to marry Jane Matthews, the daughter of a chief. I have to admit, all of this was compelling. A British man marries a Mi'kmaq woman. They build a home in a beautiful place full of fish and wildlife, and they have kids and live a semi-Indian way of life. Not only that, but some of their children and grandchildren married Mi'kmaq women. My great-great-grandfather, Edward Brake, married a woman named Josephine Duval. The more I learned about us Brakes, the more I came to see our family tree as more than incidentally Mi'kmaq. It was a big part of who we were for a long time. Maybe it could be again. In my late 20s, I was enthralled by the prospect of being part Indigenous, or whatever having Mi'kmaq ancestors meant. The widely shared stories of ancestors hiding their identity to avoid racism and discrimination, well, that all made sense. And through the generations, our families existed in plain sight as light-skinned Indigenous people living outside the confines of the Indian Act. All of this was a way to Mi'kmaq identity, so to speak, and a way to Indian status in the eyes of the Canadian government. I went on kind of a journey. In 2009, I started attending powwows, sweat ceremonies, and other cultural events. A few years later, I was gifted sage by a Mi'kmaq woman, so I began smudging, 
the ceremonial burning of sage as a form of cleansing and prayer. First at home in private, then at events. I'm not a religious person, but I wondered if something might resonate as I explored Mi'kmaq spirituality. I also met elders and other leaders, like Miaobugeg chief Mizel Joe, the spiritual leader of Newfoundland Mi'kmaq and our province's representative on the Mi'kmaq Grand Council. In 2013, he invited me to his home in Con River at the end of that year's powwow. Here we are in conversation, seated outside his home on the Miaobugeg Reserve. I'd been going around asking people, what does it mean to be Mi'kmaq? What does it mean to you to be Mi'kmaq? My heart and soul in Mi'kmaq, and I, I speak in English and I think in Mi'kmaq. Everything I think about is in Mi'kmaq, in, in that kind of perspective. You know, um, I'm incredibly honored and proud to be a Mi'kmaq person. Uh, it means that I have a, an incredible connection to the land and to the people. My heart and soul is in Mi'kmaq, there's no denying that. My, my heritage go back for, for 10,000 years mm-hmm. or longer. And the people that are claiming Mi'kmaq identity now to get status, um, some probably feel strong like that, uh, but the people that don't have the option to feel that way because they weren't raised with it, you know, what, what, um, I guess, what are your, what are your thoughts on other people embracing Mi'kmaq identity? Well, there are going to be two or three different kinds of people. There will be people that want to do this solely for the purpose of getting something from it, mm-hmm. monetary sense. Mm-hmm. There are going to be people that want to do it solely because it gives them the connection in their, in their heart that they've been looking for all their lives. And there's going to be people that are going to be sitting on the fence, uh, wondering we should fall one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And there will always be people sitting on the fence. Mm-hmm. So the second group of people that you mentioned there that... Uh that uh, you know they 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 want their status uh, they want to be a part of the band because it will you know give them something they've been looking for. Um, it gives them a connection, an identity, uh, and a connection to people, uh, like like-minded people. Mm. And um, you know that 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 probably runs deep in their family. And some some people that grew up in a fear of, of admitting who they were, and a, a fear of admitting. Some people knew their, their history for years, knew all about it, but had no, uh, you know, it was fear of talking about it. There's that fear of racism again, the fear that drove thousands of Mi'kmaq into hiding, hiding their identity because they could, because they looked and acted white. Was this the case for my family? That's just one of the many questions I've wondered about over the years. It was in those intervening years that my journey led me not just to learning about Mi'kmaq history and culture, but about Indigenous peoples and colonization and all the stuff we didn't learn in school. I was drawn to the wider struggle by Indigenous peoples against ongoing colonization of their lands. In a previous life, I celebrated the fuck at a Canada Day, sometimes even on Parliament Hill, decked out in the red and white of the Canadian flag. But once I learned this country's true history, I became someone who wouldn't be caught dead sporting the maple leaf. In my work as a reporter, I began covering Indigenous issues. That led me to cover one of the biggest stories in Newfoundland and Labrador, the fight by Innu and Inuit in Labrador against a major hydro dam project called Muskrat Falls. Hey, Muskrat, hey! Hey, Muskrat! 
four, we won't back them from the floor. Five, six, seven, eight, shut it down, it's not too late. Protests and rallies ramped up in October at Muskrat Falls. The major concern, the health impacts of the hydroelectric project on the Innu and Inuit downstream. In 2016, I traveled to Labrador as a reporter and editor for The Independent and wound up staying for more than a month. I was there the day dozens of Innu, Inuit and settler Labradorians broke through a gate and occupied the project's man camp. I went with them and stayed with them for three days until I was named on an injunction and forced to leave. In 2017, I was criminally charged for reporting from the occupation. The Canadian Association of Journalists and other colleagues across the country took up my cause. Journalists should not be treated like criminals for reporting the news. It took years, but we won that fight, and the charges against me were dismissed. The Indigenous News Organization, APTN, the Aboriginal People's Television Network, stood up for me, and later that year I applied for a reporter job with them. Their news director at the time was an Algonquin journalist named Karen Pugliese. Hey, Justin. <laughs> My God, you can't get rid of me every time you turn around. Who incidentally is now the editor-in-chief here at Canada Land. But it's good to see you. It's good to see you too. My time at APTN was like relevant to the story because... Those four or five years, whatever it was, overlapped with a really significant part of my trying to understand what it means to be somebody who's always lived as a settler and then learn you have Indigenous ancestry. I remember when you came into APTN, uh, you had status and you were telling me that it was going to expire because who got status was being revisited and you were likely not to reapply. And you were you were deep in thought about it then. I remember that. I think the deadline was in 2017-ish to submit further documentation or whatever. And everybody, in, as far as I know, everybody in my family did that. But yeah, I had decided not to. And leaving the island and working for APTN and traveling to First Nations communities across the country, that also had a really big impact. But, you know, there, there was that early conversation you and I had on Twitter. You had reached out and asked me if I was Indigenous because you had gotten involved in my court case and you were, you were wondering for the court case. And I explained to you then, I think, in a few words that I have Mi'kmaq ancestry, but I don't identify as Indigenous or I'm, I'm trying to understand what it all means. And so I, I think I said to you, I was in a gray area. I think I said we're all in a gray area. <laughs> you said we're all in a gray area and nothing could be more Aboriginal. I never asked you what you meant by that. <laughs> because of colonization, we all go through these questionings about who we are. I mean, I grew up non-status. Status is when you're recognized by the government, under the government rules, and under white man's law. And non-status is when you're indigenous, but the government doesn't recognize you. My mom had lost her status because she married a white guy. Um, but, you know, really, she'd had the right to be status, but her father never registered her. And I remember my mom, you know, uh, her father abandoned her when she was two, and that really cut her off. Uh, he was the Algonquin. Her mother was uh, Irish. And that really cut her off from the community in some ways. And she kept trying to find her way back, but she wasn't allowed to, you know, really live there, um, especially after she got married. When I was young, my parents would take us up and we would go stay on the reserve in a trailer um, along with my other aunts. And none of us really had a right to be there. And I remember the day we were exiled. Uh, my grandfather, we were staying on his land 
and we went out for dinner. And I didn't know my grandfather. I'd barely met him. And he told my mom that we would have to leave the reserve, that we couldn't be there anymore. And to her, it just completely cut her off. She was so upset. I remember her storming out of the restaurant, going to the car, standing outside the car, and she was crying so hard. And I felt like I was in a gray area. There was this like legal document like of status that I didn't have. And how would I ever explain, like I didn't speak my language because of the cutoff from my grandfather, you know, culturally, we were trying to fit in somehow and we didn't know how we fit. Um, so, I mean, I had my own struggles with identity, especially when I started working at APTN. You know, you go into communities and, well, by then I had status. And I hate that that made a difference, but it made a difference to have that colonial stamp, right? Um, but all of a sudden I had rights to vote in my community. I could live there if I wanted. But I would still go into communities and people would say, oh, you know that chief, he doesn't even speak his own language. And then that would make me feel bad. Like, what, what is the point system for being Indigenous? You know, finally, I realized that there's a lot more people like me. There's a lot more people who are alienated from their communities who, because of white man's law, are cast out of their communities. You know, and none of this is our own fault. It's not my fault. If I'd had the choice to speak my language, if there'd been a way I would have done it, um, if I could have learned to you know, hoop dance or, you know, if I could have learned ceremonies as a kid, I would have. I came to them as an adult because I struggled my own way back in. But those were a lot of thoughts that I guess fit into those words of we're all in a gray area. I was not alone in my confused, murky, and in-between sense of indigeneity. Others were in the same boat. And none of that confusion stopped me from doing the work that I loved. And some of that work? It was covering the story of the so-called Eastern Métis in the Atlantic provinces. After that 2003 Supreme Court decision, tens of thousands of white settlers with Acadian ancestry began organizing themselves politically, claiming to be Indigenous and to have Indigenous rights on unceded First Nations territories. That's when I was introduced to the work of Métis scholars and of settler scholar Daryl LaRue, who had a term for the phenomenon, race shifting. What we hear from Indigenous peoples is that being Indigenous is a political, a social, it's something um, that goes much beyond simply a racial identity, which is how mainstream society has since essentially the beginnings of colonization attempted to diminish Indigenous peoples by rendering them one sort of racial group among many, when really what we're talking about are Indigenous peoples as sovereign nations and sovereign peoples. And so this movement uses that logic, that all it takes is a drop of blood, you know, that they, they sort of um, operationalize this blood quantum idea to switch their racial identities with no regard whatsoever for um, Indigenous sovereignty and self-determination. That made me start thinking more about the psychology of all this. Why would people who have lived as settlers want to seek out an indigenous ancestor and then start identifying with that ancestor's culture above all others? And why would tens of thousands of them all decide to do this at the same time? 
Through all of this, I changed my public bios a few times, struggling to articulate in a few words my changing sense of my own identity. Newfoundlander of French, British, Irish, and Mi'kmaq descent, I think is how I put it at one point. I hoped that would do the trick. A brief but accurate statement of who I am, where I come from, and how my readers and sources should think of me. A line about me that didn't take anything from anyone else. But then, I got called out. You see, this was all a lot bigger than just me and my direct family. Many Newfoundlanders come from the same common ancestors. The question of my ancestor Jane Matthews' indigeneity, for example, has implications for literally thousands of people. Remember Calvin White, the former president of the Federation of Newfoundland Indians? Remember how he said that early on they had around 1,500 members? Well, the number has grown since then, by a lot. Some people said 20,000. I said no. I said I don't think there'll be 20,000 people. I think it'll be, there'll be 10,000 or less than 10,000 people. By the deadline, an astonishing 103,000 applications came in from Newfoundlanders and those who descend from Newfoundlanders. The entire population of Newfoundland is just over 500,000. If every new applicant was accepted, this new Mi'kmaq band would be by far the most populous First Nation in Canada. It would outnumber every other Indigenous group in the country. And with that size, as you'll hear next time, came scrutiny. Everyone knows that we have people who have falsified their documents. The Newfoundlander is reported and written by me, Justin Brake. The series was produced by Jesse Brown, Bruce Thorson, and Tristan Capacchione. Editorial contributions by Sarah Lorniak. Canada Land's managing editor is Annette Egiofo. Editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. To hear every episode of this series right now, ad-free, please become a Canada Land supporter go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in the show notes. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. 
The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.